0: Well, the first time I heard that song, it was a Sunday morning, um, early. And uh, Kelly and I have a little routine on Sunday mornings. And I'm usually up early in my closet. Uh, I study, I have a little desk in, in our walk-in closet. Um, just consolidated the clothes, you know, and pushed them all on one side and have a little desk on the other side. And Kelly gets ready in the bathroom and so oftentimes she'll turn on her iPad and be listening to music and I was hearing this, that, that last song we just sang kind of flooding into uh, our closet and I had never heard it before and it just really grabbed my attention. And I, of course, had heard of My Jesus, I Love Thee. That's a classic hymn that we all know and love but I had, I just really was drawn into that chorus, that new contemporary chorus. And so um, I think that the the words, um, the original words that we know so well are, are unique uh, in that they were not penned by an aged, aged, experienced hymn writer like so many of the other hymns. You know, you see pictures of these guys are like really old and they have gray hair and a beard. And right, it, it, these, these hymns were born out of a life of, of struggle and trial and walking with the Lord. And well, that song, uh, My Jesus, I Love Thee, was originally a poem written by a 16-year-old boy named William Featherston. And it was shortly after his conversion. And so I think it's remarkable that such a young man and a a baby Christian was able to capture the essence of Christianity in that simple little phrase, my Jesus, I love thee. That is the heart and soul of Christianity. That's what being a Christian is all about, loving Christ, If you're a follower of Christ, you are a lover of Christ. And yet we all, if we're honest, know that Christ is worthy of far more love than we're capable of expressing in our weak, wavering, sinful hearts. What's more, we don't always love him the way that we should. At times, our, our passion for Christ, it ebbs, it, it fades, and the fervor or the fire in our hearts for Christ dies down. It needs to be rekindled. And that's what we see Jesus talking about in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two, in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. Let me read this familiar text to you as you're turning there. Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven. As I was thinking about kicking off a a new year of ministry, a new season of ministry, this is the time where we just get cranked up and we all get real busy uh, in ministry, which is a joy, it's a blessing. But I think this passage is, a very important reminder for us that we don't get so busy that we forget why we're doing all that we're doing. And so hopefully this is a good uh, check for all of us individually and as a church corporately this morning. Revelation chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you've endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for giving us a desire to study your word this morning. And we acknowledge that you wrote these verses by your Spirit through the pen of the Apostle John, and we need that same spirit now to illuminate our minds, to understand, to see, to hear, to feel what you wanted us to to know from this passage. And Lord, may your spirit work among us and make specific application to each one of our lives individually and also apply this text to our church corporately this morning. Lord, that we would truly love Christ more than anything or anyone else. We ask this in his name, amen. I've titled today's sermon, First Things First. It's an expression that we're familiar with. We use it when we're talking about something that should be done or dealt with before anything else because it is the most, what? Important, first things first. And too often we let the important things in our lives get crowded out by the more urgent but less important things. The question I want to pose to you this morning is what is the most important thing in the Christian life? What is the most important thing in the Christian life? Well, Jesus Christ himself made the answer to that question perfectly clear that there's nothing more important to the Christian than loving him. When he was asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, how do you reply? Mark chapter 12, verse 28, the foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus, in fact, demanded those who followed him to make love for him the highest priority in their lives. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus wants us to love him more than anyone or anything else. And Jesus knew that wasn't gonna be as easy as it sounds In fact, he warned his disciples that during the end times, many people will fall away from loving him. Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, it says most people's love will grow cold. I think perhaps that is the the greatest challenge of the Christian life, to keep our love for Christ from growing cold. The distractions of the world, the the sheer business of, of, of life tend to dampen our devotion to Christ. And not only that, our enemy, Satan, is constantly trying to lure us away from loving the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, he said, I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion or love for Christ. Well, what Paul feared would happen to the Corinthian church happened to the church in Ephesus. they were led astray, they were drawn away from what mattered most. They were no longer simply and purely devoted to Christ their their love for Christ had grown cold, which I know has been your experience at times in your Christian life. You know what it's like, I assume, if you've walked with the Lord for many years. Maybe if you're newer to the Lord, you haven't experienced this yet, but you will. You'll understand the feeling when your relationship with Christ seems more mechanical and more less meaningful you feel like you're just going through the motions without any emotion. You, you, you find yourself doing things because you have to, not because you really want to. Well, this morning we're to find, find out what to do when that happens. When you experience the, the cooling of your love for Christ we see it here in this letter, the first of seven letters that uh, Jesus wrote to the churches in, in Asia Minor. Uh, we see in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, if I'm sure you're familiar with this section of, of the book of Revelation, uh, the Apostle John recorded seven letters that Jesus composed to seven actual historical churches that existed in Asia during the first century. You have the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In fact, you can look at the very back of your Bible in that little map section, and you can typically see the last map uh, shows you uh, the location of all these literal historical churches that existed in Asia during the first century. And the spiritual conditions found in those seven churches are, are representative of local churches throughout all of church history. Churches of all eras have the same strengths, the same weaknesses and opportunities and threats as these churches had. And so consequently, these, these seven churches that, that Jesus personally addressed in these two chapters serve as models to, to measure or compare the present condition of churches in our day. We can use Christ's messages uh, to these churches as as a grid to determine what what Christ thinks of of our church. And I think the question that we should ask ourselves is this, if, if Jesus were to write a letter to our church, to the church in Montgomery, to the church at Lakeside, what would he say? What would he say to us? Or another way of thinking about it is what's gonna be written about our church someday? What what will be written about our church someday? What what are we gonna be known for? What kind of legacy are we going to leave to the future generations of this church? To the young people, to the children that are growing up that we're gonna be handing the baton off to someday? Well, as I consider the state of our church, I see a little bit of us in all of these letters, but it seems that the Christ letter to the church in Ephesus maybe fits us best, or maybe just fits my life best. And so that's why I wanted to focus on it this morning. And, uh, Uh, While each of these seven letters have different contents, they they all follow the same literary pattern. Each letter contains seven basic features which will serve as our outline. There's the correspondent, and we see a different description of Christ taken from John's vision of Christ in in chapter one, verses nine through through 20. Uh, There's the city, there's the church, there's a commendation, and then there's a condemnation, And then there's a correction, and then there's a consolation. And so let's follow that pattern, the pattern that is uh, used here in these seven letters as our outline. So first of all, we see the correspondent. The correspondent, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now, obviously, Christ is not specifically mentioned as the author of this letter, but there's no doubt that it's him because these are, these are the direct words, his direct words, through the Apostle John, and we know that because these phrases, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, is a direct quote or a, a direct description of Christ as the glorious Lord of the church that, that John had in his vision in, in verses 9 through through 20. What does it mean that Christ, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, I think the seven stars represented the leaders uh, of the seven churches, and the fact that they are in his right hand signifies that that the pastors, the elders uh, of this particular church were under his sovereign rule or control. He held them firmly in his grip, and ultimately Christ is the one who is in control of his church, amen? It's not me, it's not the elders, it's not you as a congregation, it's the Lord. And so here he's holding the seven stars in his right hand, and it says he's walking among the seven golden lampstands. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches. And the fact that he's walking among them signified Christ's continual presence and watchful care as the chief shepherd, the chief elder, the chief pastor or overseer of the flock. He's the one who's ultimately protecting us and prodding us and probing us as a church. And so the correspondent is Christ. The city is Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. By the way, that word angelos, he's referring to the pastor or the leader of the church in Ephesus. So the letter was being sent to the leadership there. But Ephesus was known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. And there were several reasons why it was the the chief city in all of Asia in those days. It was located where the Kester River met the Asian Sea, Uh, It was the primary seaport in Asia, served as the gateway to the entire province. Um, In addition, four main highways converged in Ephesus, making it the trade center of all of Asia. Uh, The the city was, was most well known for being the home of the temple Diana, or Artemis, the goddess Diana, one of the seven, the temple, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was not only a the center of pagan worship, but it also served as one of the most important banks in the Mediterranean world. It also provided sanctuary, believe it or not, for criminals who came from all over Asia to find safe asylum in the wall, within the walls of this, of, this, of this temple. Now, if you know anything about the worship of Diana, it was extremely immoral. In fact, listen to one man's description. Her idol, Diana, was a gross, many-breasted monstrosity, popularly believed to have fallen from heaven. The temple was attended by numerous priests, eunuchs, and slaves. Thousands of priestesses who were little more than ritual prostitutes played a major role in the worship of Artemis. The temple grounds were a chaotic cacophony of priests, prostitutes, bankers, criminals, musicians, dancers, and frenzied, hysterical worshipers. It's no wonder that The philosopher Heraclitus said that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at the immorality of that city. And yet, in the midst of this dark, decadent city, the the church stood as a lampstand strategically placed there by Christ. Christ raised up a church there in the midst of that decadence. And so we come to the third section here the church what do we know about the church? So the angel of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had a very rich spiritual heritage. It was established by Paul with the help of Apollos and and Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul spent three years ministering to this body of believers, which was longer than he spent anywhere else in all of his uh, journeys and in all the churches that he planted. This was where he spent the most time. They were also the recipients of one of Paul's greatest epistles that he wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome. And as you know, Paul appointed his young disciple Timothy to to be uh, the one who took over after Paul came and had to clean house a bit, kick out some of the elders that had gone astray and were teaching heresy and leading people away from the truth. And he left Timothy there. Uh, his his prized disciple, if you will, the the only one who could say he was like-minded with that, that he could entrust anywhere to anyone. Later, tradition says that the apostle John himself, the writer of Revelation, served as the leader of the church until he was exiled to the island of Patmos, which is just 60 miles west of Ephesus, out in the Mediterranean Ocean. And so when you consider the the stellar leadership that these believers enjoyed, they they were undoubtedly the the most well-taught church in Asia, which enabled them to have a a 40-year tradition of faithfulness. And there was much to commend about this church. And that's what Jesus begins by doing. He he gives them a commendation. Notice he says in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. He says, I know. In fact, he said that to every one of these churches. Chapter two, verse nine, to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Chapter two, verse 13, to the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell. Verse 19, to the church in Thyatira, I know your deeds. Chapter three, verse one, to the church in Sardis, he says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Verse eight, to the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. And then again, in verse 15 of chapter three to the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds. This is just a good reminder that Jesus knows everything there is to know about our church, both good and bad. He knew everything there was to know, good and bad about these churches. He knows everything good and bad about our church too. Nothing ever escapes his omniscience or his omnipresence. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think that way, that Jesus, when we gather together, that Jesus Christ is right here in our midst? He's here right now, reading every thought that we're all thinking, perceiving every motive why we're here? Why we're doing what we're doing? Hearing every word, watching every action, he knows. And what he knew about this church initially was worthy of commendation. He commended them for all the all the things they were doing right. They were they were a serving church. Notice he says, "I know your your deeds." In other words, they were doing the work of the Lord. They were were evangelizing the lost. They were were equipping the saints. They were humbly caring for the poor and the the needy. I know your deeds. They were a a serving church. They were also a sacrificing church. Notice he says, I know your deeds and your toil. I know you, you are laboring, serving, Uh, working to the point of exhaustion. You're not not just really spectators who are wanting to be entertained, but you're actively involved in advancing the cause of Christ and you're paying the price physically, mentally, emotionally for your sacrificial service. And so they were a, a sacrificing church. They were also a steadfast church. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. There's that word hupomeno, right? To bear up under trial and difficulty. They, they were patient in the midst of difficult circumstances. They, they, they courageously endured the hardships of trials and persecutions for the sake of Christ. And it says they had not grown weary in verse 3. They refused to give in or to give up. They didn't flinch or faint. They remained faithful to the Lord. And lastly, they they were a separated church. They were a separated church. Notice he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. They had a high standard of holiness. They didn't tolerate sinful people within the church. I mean, we're all sinful, right? But the reference there is to people who are openly sinning. And everyone sees it, everybody knows it, but nobody's doing anything about it. And so it's likely that they guarded the purity of the church by following Christ's mandate to practice church discipline in Matthew 18. Notice he says, you put to the test those who who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. He mentions this group in verse six. You this, yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't we don't know for sure who those people were. The only other time they're mentioned is in the letter to the church in Pergamum. Just look down a few verses, verse fourteen. But I have a few things against you. This is the con- uh, condemnation of the church in Pergamum because you have. Because you have, there some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of morality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So apparently this connection that is made between the Nicolaitans and Balaam implies that they were a heretical group who encouraged people to abuse the grace of God and their liberty in Christ by continuing to live in, in, in the idolatrous and immoral practices of the pagan culture out of which they were saved? And not only do you hate them, you put them to the test, he says. In other words, they exercised discernment by carefully examining the scriptures to make sure that what they were being taught and the lives of those who were teaching them lined up with the scriptures. They were like the the noble-minded Bereans from Acts chapter 17. In fact, if you remember back in Acts chapter 20, Paul had warned the elders years, many years earlier about even some of them defecting from the faith. And they took that very seriously. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves. He's speaking to the elders uh, who came to visit him on his way to Jerusalem, or excuse me, on his way to Rome. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. And so they diligently kept watch over the flock, looking for wolves who might try to sneak in and disrupt and destroy the church. I like how Chuck Swindoll described this church. They were the pit bulls of orthodoxy who tenaciously guarded the truth and chased away false teachers and successfully protected the doctrinal purity of the church again this is a great reminder for us that we too must constantly be on the alert in order to detect and reject false teachers and their and their teaching john wrote elsewhere in his second small epistle in second john verse 7 he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you ha- we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. In other words, we must never allow heresy to find a welcome home in this church. And so for over 40 years, this church, the church in Ephesus, remained faithful to the Lord, loyal to his word, diligent in the work which he had called them to do. I mean, you look at this this hardworking, persevering, righteous living, Doctrinally sound church, and man, it seems like it has everything you'd want a church. I mean, I want to I go to that church, I want to be a part of that church. Well, like every church, they were not a perfect church, at least not as perfect as they appeared to be from the outside. And despite this glowing commendation, Christ spotted one fatal flaw. And that brings us to the condemnation, verse four. But in spite of all that, all that good stuff, all those reasons, all those commendable things that you do, I have this against you. I just, got, I just have one thing against you, that you've left your first love literally your first love, you have left. The emphasis being on your first love. Here was this bastion of biblical truth, bustling with spiritual activity, and yet they had forsaken the most critical element to the livelihood of the entire church. Love. First and foremost, love for, for Jesus Christ, but this may have also included love for each other. It may have been also even included love for the lost. I think Christ's point here is that the love that, that, that characterized their early years when they had first come to know him had diminished Now, 40 years later, their spiritual life had become cold and and mechanical. The, The honeymoon was over, as we say oftentimes about marriages. But the amazing thing is you could never tell it by looking at the surface. On the surface, everything looked like it was fine. They were still active in ministry. They were still orthodox in their theology. But something was missing. They were no longer doing those things out of love for Jesus. They were just going through the motions. They were in maintenance mode, if you will. Granted, they were were still doing all the right things except for the most important thing, which was loving Jesus. And they were busy doing the work of the Lord, but they were no longer loving the Lord of the work. Do you see the profound principle here in verse four? It's possible for us as Christians to be doing all the right things and not love Jesus. It's possible. It's possible to have our quiet time every day and not love Jesus. It's possible to come to church every Sunday and not love Jesus. It's possible to teach a Sunday school class and not love Jesus. It's, it's possible to be signed up and attending a grow group and not love Jesus. It's possible to go to a woman's Bible study or, or a men's Bible study, Ironman, and, and not love Jesus. It's possible to go to 220 or, or be a part of our kids' ministry and not love Jesus. It's possible to be discipling others and being discipled and not love Jesus. It's possible to be an elder or a deacon and not love Jesus, it's possible to study God's word and preach sermons every Sunday and not love Jesus. Listen, just because we have a bulletin full of activities, a website promoting a, a, a lot of great programs, doesn't necessarily mean we love Christ. Just because we're a Bible church that places a high premium on the, on the preaching of the truth of God's word doesn't necessarily mean we love Christ. Listen, Christ wants more than our heads. He wants more than our hands. He wants our what? He wants our hearts. He's not as concerned about what we do as why we do it. And God looks, looks past all of our spiritual activity desiring to find what is fueling it all. And what he's looking for, what he's longing for is a heart that burns with love and passion for Christ. How do you know if you've left your first love? Well, I would say, some of the indications might be that you don't long to spend time with Christ or other Christians the way you used to. Prayer and Bible study are more of a duty than a privilege. You find yourself doing your, your Bible study so you have something to say when your group gets together. Rather than wanting to know Christ more, you Maybe you feel obligated to go to church so you don't look bad. You don't feel guilty. Ministry has become more of a burden than a, than a blessing. You're less concerned about the advancement of, of Christ's kingdom and, and you're more concerned about advancing your own kingdom. If any of that describes your heart, That it may be that you too have left your first love. But don't be discouraged. Your condition is not beyond recovery, there's hope. Because in verse 5, we have the correction. The correction. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lamb sign out out of its place unless you repent. Here we have the master physician prescribing a remedy for the church in Ephesus' waning love or a prescription for your waning love for Christ. He commanded them to do three things to rekindle the flame of their love for Christ. They all start with R. First of all, they were to remember, literally keep on remembering. Remember from where you've fallen. In other words, think back to how things used to be when you first came to Christ. When you were totally devoted to Christ and used to enjoy sweet intimacy with Christ It's like the prodigal son when he was wayward and he had gone far, far away from the father's house and when he was sitting there in that pigsty, he remembered, he thought about what things used to be like when he was living under his father's roof. And that began to warm his heart and move his heart back towards home and wanting to repent and and, 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 and honor his father. And so rekindling our our love for Christ, I think, begins with with some honest self-examination. We need to be honest about where we're at in our relationship with Christ. More importantly, we must not only know where we are in our relationship with Christ, we need to know how we got there. And we need to be able to determine where we went astray or how we got sidetracked or what's hindering us. What are the root causes? And I think uh, the best place to start in analyzing a, a dec- declining love for Christ would be to examine your secret duties, your, 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 your time in God's word, your, your time in prayer. Because typically, a neglect of those secret duties, a neglect of the, the, the word and, and prayer is, is the primary cause of declining love. It's usually whenever we start to backslide the first thing to go is our, is our time in God's word and our time in prayer. Isn't, isn't that true in your experience? So we need to examine ourselves, but that's, that's not enough. While it may prove painful to admit that you're not where you once were, where you need to be, that's honestly, that's the easy part. The hard part is what comes next, and that is Changing. Notice he says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and, what's the word? Repent. That's our second R. You need to remember and then you need to repent. Metanoia, which means to change. You need to turn around. You need to do a 180, if you will. You need to stop going in one direction and start going in the opposite direction. And if you're like me, our, our, our sinful tendency when confronted with our sin, is to maybe talk about it a little bit, acknowledge it a bit, but then not really do anything about it. We 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 want to go somewhere else. We want to do something else. Let's let's turn on the TV. Let's let, let's grab the newspaper. Let's go cut the yard. Let us go shopping or or seek some other diversion so you don't have to deal with the situation. Let's go. Let's binge watch something you know uh, on the internet some t- past TV show, just to kind of take our minds off of dealing with reality. But if we want our, our love relationship with Christ to be restored, we need to make a commitment to change and take deliberate steps to do that. And I think the first thing we need to do is just to cry out to God in prayer and if necessary, confess our lack of love for Christ. Christ ask him to forgive us for drifting away from our original passion for Christ. And and, and we need to tell him, hey, God, I know affections matter in my relationship with you. And I'm not feeling those right now or a whole bunch of those right now. I know based on your word that to, to not love Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength is sin. It was a command that Christ gave and And so I beg you to revive my passion for Christ that that I once had, restore the joy of of living for him and serving him from just a pure and simple motive of love. And so we need to remember, we need to repent. And then thirdly, we need to redo or repeat Notice he says, remember from where you fall and repent and do the deeds you did at first. It's not just doing, it's redoing, it's repeating. In other words, get back to doing the things that you used to do to nurture a relationship with Christ, whether that was prayer, Bible study, regularly attending church, uh, being plugged into a, a small group, faithfully serving in some ministry, telling others about Christ. Whatever it is that you were doing back then when you were on fire for Christ, you need to start doing those things again. And we need to do those things even if and when we don't feel like it. Sometimes we're in a position where we think, well, I don't, I don't wanna be a hypocrite. I don't, I don't want to come to church if I don't feel like it. That's hypocrisy. I don't want to read my Bible if I don't feel like it. That's hypocrisy. No, that's obedience. That's obedience. And we need to trust that, that as we obey what we know God desires for our lives, that our feelings will follow in time. And so you may have to do some of these things without the affections at first, but trust that those affections will follow. And so herein lies the solution to lost love. We need to obey these three commands. Remember, repent, and repeat. And we need to do them by faith. We need to obey by faith, believing that these are the means that Christ himself ordained for us to fall in love with him all over again. These are the words of Christ. Listen, if you've fallen out of love with me, let me tell you how to fall back in love with me. And notice the incentive that, that Jesus provided for the Ephesian church, not to blow off what he was saying here, but to, but to obey these commands. He says, or else, verse five, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So he, he, he underscored the seriousness of their situation by warning them if they didn't change, they would be chastened. They would be disciplined. He, he threatened to come in judgment and remove their lampstand. What does that mean? Well, he would remove the, the light of their witness. It would be extinguished. The church would go out of existence. And tragically, despite its unprecedented blessings and privilege, that's eventually what happened to the church in Ephesus. After the fifth century, both the church and the city declined and the immediate area has been uninhabited since since the 14th century. You can go there today and it's just all these architectural ruins. What's the moral of that story? A church or individual who loses their love will lose their light. They'll eventually lose their light no matter how spiritually active we are or how doctrinally sound we are, we'll become useless, we'll become ineffective. A church or an individual without love for Christ cannot survive forever. And so we need to realize that, that lack of love for Christ is a, is a secret defect It's not always obvious. It's a secret defect that silently but surely erodes a church or erodes an individual believer and threatens not only our effectiveness but also our very existence. But again, that doesn't have to be the outcome of our church or of any of us. Notice lastly, the consolation. In verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is how Jesus closed all seven of these letters, the same exhortation and a similar promise that applies to all true Christians. He who has ears, to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Again, this is a familiar phrase that Jesus used often throughout his earthly ministry. It was a way of emphasizing the importance of what you just heard. What I just said is very important. If you have ears, listen up. Do what I just said. He says, he who overcomes will, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That word overcome in the Greek was used to describe a a victorious soldier. This is a, a concept we see in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, this idea of the overcomer. John loved this concept. 23 out of the 27 uses of this phrase, the overcomer, are found in his letters, letters he wrote. And again, the term doesn't refer to just some special group of super spiritual strong saints. No, this is... This is synonymous with a believer. We don't have time to look, but you could just note 1 John 5, 4. He describes a believer as an overcomer. An overcomer is a believer. And so those who believe in Jesus Christ are able to gain victory over Satan's temptations, overcome the world and all its allurements, which proves they're truly saved and they'll be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. That's what he's referring to, this tree of life and this is a picture of eternal life. This tree of life was first mentioned, if you remember, back in Genesis chapter two and three. It's last mentioned in Revelation chapter 22. And so what was lost in the garden through the sin of Adam will be regained in heaven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. A clear reference to heaven, being in the presence of, of God forever. I know whenever I've thought about, read about this whole idea of leaving your first love, it's always very convicting, it's always very humbling, and can be even discouraging. And so in closing, I just want to remind you of one very important truth, one very important promise. And that is this. The Christian life is not about how much we love Jesus, but how much Jesus loves us. Amen? And in Romans chapter 8, Paul said, nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of Christ. And so, even though our love for Christ may fluctuate, may change, his love for us is always the same, it never changes. That's a foreign concept for us as human beings because if you're married, you know sometimes, right, couples grow apart and rarely is it one couple just constantly never changing in their love for this. Typically, they're both going in the opposite direction. Typically, it's not one person staying the same and one person drifts away. No, they, they typically both drift away that's not true of a relationship with Christ. He, he remains the same. I was given a, an interesting little book years ago by a friend when I had mentioned to him that I just felt like I didn't love Jesus as much as I should and as much as I wanted to and as much as I used to. And so the next week he dropped off a book entitled, "Personal." declension, and revival of religion in the soul by a guy named Octavius Winslow. I was like, oh, this should be fun. Puritan book. But listen to this precious statement. Remember that though your love has waxed cold, the love of thy God and Father towards thee has undergone no change. Your love for God may be all over the map, his never changed. Although he has hated thy declension, it's not like God likes it when we fall out of love with Christ. He's rebuked thy wanderings, yet his love, he has not withdrawn from thee. What an encouragement to return to him again. Not one moment has God turned his back upon you, though thou hast turned thy back upon him times without number. Retrace thy steps and return again to God though thou has been a poor wanderer and has left thy first love, though thy affections have strayed from the Lord and thy heart has gone after other lovers, still God is gracious and ready to pardon and he will welcome you back again for the sake of Jesus, his beloved son, in whom he is well pleased. In other words, he looks at us and sees Jesus who died on the cross for our sin of a lack of love for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this humbling but hopefully helpful reminder of what truly matters most for us as a church, for us as individual Christians. We thank you that your love for us remains the same even though our love ebbs and flows and fades. Thank you for the comfort, the hope that we have that you will always love us no matter what we do or don't do, no matter what we say or don't say that there's nothing that we could ever do that could make us uh, love you anymore, love, love us anymore, or, or there's nothing we could ever do that, that could make you love us any less. Maybe find great rest in that but at the same time we know that you long for us to be passionately in love with the Lord Jesus our Lord our savior and so i pray lord if necessary that we would each have an honest time of self-examination and that we would remember what things used to be like that we would do what it takes to repent and to get back to doing those things that we need to do and not as a to-do list, Father, but that we would do it all in the power and the strength that you provide us by your spirit. But ultimately, that we would want to be pleasing to you by loving Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've got some more things on my heart regarding the subject of loving Christ that we don't have time for this morning, but come back next week and i um, planning a little bit of a follow-up message that hopefully will be practical and helping us putting, putting some of these principles that we've learned or been reminded, about, reminded of this morning into practice in our lives. But uh, in the meantime, we want to, uh, again, invite you to sign up for one of our grow groups because you love Jesus, not because you have to, not so you don't feel guilty, right? Because you love Jesus and you want to be around others who love Jesus, And so we're gonna ask our Grow Group leaders if you would quickly come and stand behind uh, these tables where your uh, clipboard is. And uh, and in just a moment, we're gonna dismiss you all. And uh, again, we wanna encourage you if you've yet to uh, sign up or re-sign up for your Grow Group, uh, please come and do that. Even if you've already talked to your leader, just come and sign up. I know it encourages them to see their list full, right, of of folks that are excited about starting and things are kicking off uh, this week. Some of your groups will meet tonight uh, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Uh, and so uh, we're getting back after it. And so uh, again, it, this is uh, especially important for those of you that are newer to the church. Uh, this is how we ha- have set up our shepherding strategy for our church. How can we best care for you? How can we make sure you don't slip through the cracks? How can we make sure you get, you feel connected to our body, you feel communicated with, uh, you feel cared for, uh, that you can grow and change, you can be counseled in God's word. Okay, in a big church like this, it's not gonna happen here on Sunday mornings. We gotta make a bigger church smaller. And the way we do that is through these small groups, these grow groups. And the the goal, again, is to grow, to grow to become more like Jesus. So if you're new to the church, um, please come and maybe talk to some of these leaders, ask some questions. All the information about each one of these groups is in your bulletin. uh, And you can just look through the different groups. We've got 13 groups to choose from, different locations, different subject matters, different times. Um, So... Uh, and some of them either, even, like, have, have food. So uh, find the ones with the food. Maybe that's the one you want to go with. Uh, but anyway, you guys have a great day, and uh, you're dismissed.